Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. Today on the podcast, nutrition director and co-founder of Opal, Julie Church, will be joining us to talk about what the alternative is to diets. So the last episode that you and I did together, Julie, was about why people shouldn't start a diet. I am excited today to talk about what the alternative is Mm -hmm. to diets. I feel energy around that, too. I want for people to have the alternative. And it is natural to kind of get into this conversation because I get that question often because people know, okay, so you're a non-diet dietitian or you don't promote or support these other things. I had this happen actually at a little holiday party at my son's preschool, you know, and this mom's like, oh, you're a dietitian. So, okay, I was thinking about doing the Whole30. She's like, I've never dieted. I've never done anything like that. And I just turned to her and I said, look, you probably know what you want to do with food, how you want to treat your body, how you want to feed yourself. And instead of reading some book that somebody else tells you about you or what you're supposed to do, what if you actually just pause and spend a couple of hours with yourself thinking about, oh, I really like eating this way or the rhythms of the way that my food prep and my family life work is this way. Like, you probably have your own wisdom within your own self because that's something that I believe we're all given. And especially her, she said she wasn't ever a dieter and she's never done that stuff. I'm like, oh, I bet you have it. You bet you have the wisdom. Yeah. I'm hearing that and I believe it. And I also can imagine so many other people thinking like, no, when I'm left to my own devices, all I have is sugar. All I do (laughs) is eat the candy that's around or left Mm -hmm. to my own devices, I just order pizza. Mm -hmm. So what are you talking about? Yeah, I think what we're talking about is appetite and sort of appetite regulation. And there are lots of levels of what we could talk about with that. And I think just to name that our body... It has in it appetite-regulating hormones and neurotransmitters that are a part of our appetite-regulating system. And so our body physiologically and biologically is born with a mechanism that tells us to turn to food when we need it and to stop eating food when we are done with it and don't need it right then. So people will have that ingrained sense in their body of when they're hungry based off of these appetite hormones. Right. So especially when we think about infancy and we look at when the body is uninterrupted and these hormone regulations, and then also the psychological element that comes into appetite and our food relationship is uninterrupted. We see babies will let you know when they are hungry and they will let you know when they're full. And our philosophy at Opal and the way that I have have functioned as a dietitian in helping people guide them to have a healthy relationship with food and their body is to trust that their body also, at whatever age and stage they are, does still work. I am thinking back on some other episodes that we've done together where we've talked more about like what happens when you start feeling the pull to diet or the shame in your food choices or you know shame in your body size, et cetera, that then would lead you to stop trusting yourself. Mm -hmm. So I just want to point that out for listeners to go back to those episodes and listen, because today we're definitely focusing on how to listen, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, totally. Not looking at the problem, but if, if you as a listener don't want to diet, is there a resource within your own body 
that you could turn to. And I think that's what I, I hope that this episode will get to. I want to give a shout out to those that have gone before me and in my career that I really learned from and leaned into. Karen Katrina is a dietitian who lives in Florida and has a practice there. And she wrote a book, Moving Away from Diets, that I have referred to for years. She has a hunger fullness scale on there that I've used in my practice. And then Evelyn Tribble and Elise Resch wrote Intuitive Eating. And they also have kind of the 10 principles of intuitive eating. And so those are two resources that have been around for a lot of years. And those professionals have continued to develop and great, great places to look. We'll put the links to their websites and books uh, in our show notes. So you can check those out. So intuitive eating, that book actually was the place where I started Mm. in learning about how to trust my body. I found it in sometime in high school, late high school, and was struggling with a lot of disordered eating. And (laughs) this is so embarrassing, but there was someone on American Idol. Yes. Catherine McPhee. You got it. Oh, so you know about this. Okay, so Catherine McPhee, who then went on to act and be really cool, was bulimic, and she came out as bulimic and had talked about her story in People magazine. I still remember because I cut out the article and found it like a few years ago. I was like, oh. Thanks, Catherine. But she talked about that book and it was featured in People magazine. And I was just so, so interested in this alternative way and started reading it myself. And it was such an interesting and different process for me and an awkward one for sure to start trying to figure out what my body was saying. It was painstaking, actually. (laughs) Do you want to share more about Yeah. I had a relationship to food that, to me, mostly felt pretty chaotic. In retrospect, I can see that it was also pretty restrictive. And mostly it felt chaotic and I felt a lot of guilt and shame about how chaotic it was. So that was the problem, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) That was the thing that was, you know. Not as acceptable yes. as being restrictive. That still is true today. It's still I think that's true. Common for most people yep. that come in for treatment for eating disorders or a struggle is they're eating too much and yep. maybe they're gaining weight and they need to get it under control. Yeah. If you're got it under control too much, people often aren't concerned about yeah. that. So anyway, I was I was out of control in my mind and wanted to figure out how to be more in control, probably, <laughs> but. I had gone through some cycles of that and and was certainly noticing how I couldn't really figure out how to do it. So for me, when I started getting introduced to this idea of intuitive eating, I did have a pretty hard time trusting that I would actually want a variety of foods and that I would stop eating. That I think that was the biggest point of skepticism for me. Like there is not a point where I would notice that I was full. So I felt like I was overeating all the time. So I was like, I just, my, I will not slow down enough to be able to notice that. Mm-hmm. So the painstaking part for me was the process in which I really started asking myself, like, okay, what do I want right now? Am I full? How full? Et cetera. And I think that that speaks a little bit to your hunger and fullness scale that you referenced. I didn't know exactly what that was, but... I remember being very careful for a little while around like, okay, what is it I exactly want and, and how full am I and, and what's going on in my body? Um, and so it was sort of learning how to walk. Relearning. It is. Re- yeah. It's part, I, I believe it's, it's a key part to relearning how to eat after mm-hmm. one has struggled with disordered eating or chronic dieting. Yeah. 
it was cool too and maybe a little bit obsessive for a little bit to be so in my body and I remember a memory in English class in senior year of high school like thinking through how hungry I was and I had so many snacks at that time I was like always had food so I could always have access and always respond Mm. it was a really cool process Mm. And, I love it. Yeah, and my relationship to food now looks totally different than that painstaking process of constant listening and hyper focus on my hunger level. Mm-hmm. But you're 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 it. like speaking to so many of the elements of kind of one's process or from the book, even the ten principles of intuitive eating. Like you're naming so many different elements to it. I think, and I think just the development of your own understanding of what is hunger and what your cues are that led you to food or leads you to food now. And then your sense of fullness and how, when you would know when to stop or when to choose something else, even the hunger scale, um, hunger fullness scale that you mentioned is typically it's just a visual and we'll put it on the show notes too, but it's sort of a zero to 10 scale. And you know, you're an artist. You probably didn't love the linear nature of that. Uh, we have recreated. What a stereotype. Sorry. <laughs> but a lot of people don't like the numbers and sort of the linear part of it because it feels too specific. And mm. I think you spoke to this. Some people can adopt more of a attuned or intuitive eating approach and make that their new diet and make that be something they can be totally obsessed with. So I certainly don't want for our listeners to feel like that's this is the next thing um, in that way because it, it really – the hope is that it is something that allows for you to be more embodied and more connected to your own self and your own resources, your own wisdom. It's not necessarily a prescription like yeah. a diet would be. Yeah. It, it's sort of more learning a language of your body. I think about that with anything that I've learned, painting or Spanish mm. or whatever. The the first part of it is pretty clumsy. And then eventually you're not even thinking about it. You're just doing it. And mm-hmm. you're able to do complicated things without thinking about it at all. Many people, when they're seeking recovery from an eating disorder, have they have interrupted this natural process within them for some length of time. And they then oftentimes in recovery go, I, wow, who's who around me is even doing this? Who is eating in response to their hunger and fullness and would be what would be maybe, quote unquote, a normal eater? Um, and I, unfortunately, in our culture there, it does sometimes feel hard to find those people because so many people have interrupted their own trust in their own body to then seek advice and expertise out in the diet world. But I think recognizing that they're unassuming, like the people that are just sort of eating. They're not talking about it. They're not talking about it because like yeah. you're saying, it it just sort of comes to be this natural thing that doesn't take a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. It made me think back to what I said earlier about people assuming that, okay, if I trust myself, I'm just going to want the sugar. I'm just going to want the crazy amount of carbs or whatever it is. And I just wanted to put back in there this idea that the transition into listening to yourself is clumsy in and of itself because of whatever interruption has happened. So if you've restricted all of these foods, then there's a kind of backlash. I don't know if there's a better word for it. A um, Your body's now really wanting that particular food or is nutrient deficient in a particular area and is going to be desperate for those carbs or desperate for whatever. Or the psychological power of a food has been intensified by the restriction of it. And so when you start listening, you're like, I really want that again. I want it again. I want it again. I want it. I only want that. Mm-hmm. But then on the other side of that is... So actually, sick of it a little bit now, or kind of want this, or the yeah. nuances come back. 
Totally. I think that what you're speaking to is the the process of working through permission and freedom with food yeah. and saying, okay, I can have access to whatever, maybe even whenever. And so then it's from there, one is able to actually listen to hunger and fullness. And I think in the experience of treatment, we're getting to be able to allow for our clients to be able to be fully fed and adequately nourished to a place that then metabolically the chemicals in one's body and these hormones I'm speaking to actually do communicate accurately and give the cues. And I will often say that hunger and fullness, they're the language of our metabolism. They're mm-hmm. the way that we're, they're communicating to us. And so we just need to listen to that. And in just the day-to-day, giving yourself freedom and permission to eat and eating adequately is a beginning like paramount to being able to have hunger and fullness work actually lead you to be able to trust your body. If you're coming from a restrictive place or more of an impulsive, chaotic place, it is going to be a real hard process to then name, is this actually hunger, physiological hunger, or what else? So I feel like what you're speaking to is the necessity to actually have adequacy in food first before you can have safety and trusting your body and mm-hmm. trust at all, which reminds me a little bit of how relationships work. Like if you've mm-hmm. neglected somebody or you've only responded to them in anger or dismissiveness, they're not going to come to you with their feelings, right? Same thing with your body. If you are always denying its existence and its needs and its desires, it's going to stop talking. The analogy that I like to use with clients is that when one is feeling the lack of hunger and fullness, their body thinks they're stuck in a cave. And when they're in a starved or chaotic place, the body stops giving those appetite cues because they need to be safe in a cave. Because if they were getting cues to go out and get food, getting that hunger cue to go get food, there's danger outside. There's lions and bears and tigers that are going to kill them. And so it is safer to stay in the cave than to go get food and get that nourishment need met. And that is what happens when one is in that chaos or that starvation, especially the starvation state, is that the body's cues, those hormones do not get released in the same way because they're keeping the body safe. They're not trying to send them out to hunger and fullness, like, nope, just safety. In kind of restoring coming out of a diet mentality or out of an eating disorder, it's it's getting out of the cave, <laughs> eating regularly, and it's giving the cue and that message to the body that I am okay, I'm in a safe environment, there's access to food, I'm going to be able to treat my body well. And in that place, that's when the hunger cues will restore. Uh, but that's what we're saying in terms of adequate nourishment. Like there, there does have to be adequate access to food and the psychological freedom and permission to eat food. So evolutionarily, it's like our bodies still think we're stuck in a cave without the food and there's scary things that are going to get us out there when we're doing all we do with food and body in this modern diet culture. So once there's access to food, how do you distinguish hunger? Yes. Like what does that look like? Yes. Sounds so, like a basic question, but if people haven't had those cues or haven't trusted them, what do they look like? What do they feel like? Yeah. And it's really fun work as a dietitian and just in, I find, in just like a helping, caring way like to help somebody reconnect and be embodied in this way. The first thing that I'm helping them do is maybe visualize a bit on that scale, if that's helpful, that zero to 10 scale to understand that 
hunger and fullness are not stagnant. They are not this one place that you arrive at and then you leave. Mm. It is more of a fluid experience and that there's extreme, there's, it's on a continuum. And that also, I don't know, I'd ask you, I guess, what thing do people think about most when they're wondering if they're hungry or they're full? What are they thinking about the most? I'm hungry right now. Okay. Actually. Okay. <laughs> so I am finding myself, I rushed here to the studio because I hadn't looked at the clock. And okay. so I did not have breakfast. Okay. I admit it. Yeah. I have my breakfast. In that bag or, over there. Yeah. I've got a lot of food ah. in a bag next to the mic and it's distracting. Like as we're talking, mm-hmm. I've thought, oh, you know, after this, I'm going to go back to my office and I'll do this. And I've actually even noticed that I'm starting to want things that I didn't pack for lunch too. Like, oh, I should have actually brought that thing also from the fridge. And oh, I wish I also had that. It's just like the, I have a pretty good amount of food in that bag, but I'm like, I kind of really want more now. And I'm noticing that I'm preoccupied a little bit with the gurgling in my stomach and just notice that. Whereas if we're talking and I'm not hungry, I wouldn't really be conscious of what is going on in my stomach. Yeah. Of course. I mean, I can feel it. Mm. I I love it. it. Yeah. I mean, what you just named in terms of your experience of hunger, I think is probably deeper and more nuanced than a lot of people have developed. Most people just think about their stomach when they think about hunger and fullness. And I think what you just named was thoughts about yeah. food, some emotions, some some ability to be distracted and thinking about food outside of the context, like looking over at that bag. <laughs> <laughs> and then you also named physical sensations, right? Mm-hmm. You you were speaking about your stomach. But I, I do think that a lot of people limit hunger and fullness to what is my stomach telling me. And one of the most important things is for folks to expand what parts of their body they are noticing um, cues that could come about hunger and then similarly uh, fullness and not just limit it to the physical sensations but allow it also to go into the realm of emotions and thoughts. Yeah that's a really good point because I, I also think that in that if you're just focused on your stomach you would probably get some other confusing cues potentially <laughs> especially if you have a difficult relationship with your body maybe you also don't like your stomach or maybe you have a lot of anxiety and so it always kind of feels like there's a pit in your stomach or you're nervous about something trying to shut down your emotion that a lot could happen in there yeah and I think different people have different connection to different parts right, right. like might feel it more in their thought process or versus in their physical sensations that might yeah. come from their stomach so even in the realm of physical sensation, when thinking about hunger, what other parts of the body to pay attention to? I know that for me, I will start to have head achy sort of blankness a little bit. So yes, in my thought process, of course, it's also that my thoughts may slow or get a little bit less focused, but also that I will start to have a bit of a headache. Mm-hmm. And my headache, even after I eat, if I've let myself get too hungry and then I eat, that headache is going to last for the rest of the day or I'll have to medicate it with some sort yeah. of aspirin or something because it's it's a consequence to the fact that I let myself get too hungry. For me, head is pretty pretty key. I will also, I think, thinking about um, some nervous energy or just like a little bit of physical movement. So sometimes, you know, just agitation. Yeah. That could be more of an emotion, but then it also can manifest itself in some of the small, quick movements. Yeah. I typically have lunch around 1230 when I'm working. 
And I'll notice that sometimes in that 1130 to 1230 range, mm-hmm. I feel really scattered. And I'm like, oh, I, I forgot this thing in the file room. And, oh, I and I'm like, OK, maybe you need to have lunch a little earlier or to be more productive or something. <laughs> this hour is beginning to feel a little bit useless. Like have a <laughs> snack. You know? yes. I yes. also have noticed in my boyfriend that he stops making eye contact sometimes when he's hungry. Like he'll kind of be more distracted or seem a little bit more curt. Okay. And <laughs> just like, you want to go eat? <laughs> so yeah. we can keep talking. Yeah. So yeah, I think that hunger can show itself in so many different ways. I think it's... Uh, a piece that when we start to actually notice what is hunger, it is important to recognize that it's on this continuum and that there's going to be times where it's subtle hunger and then it sort of moves into more extreme hunger. And the thing that I would say to the chronic dieters or those that have struggled with eating disorders that are listening, that you probably are most familiar with the extreme levels of hunger. There's probably some beliefs in your own way of thinking that haven't allowed you to actually feed yourself when you're subtly hungry. And the reality is that when we are subtly hungry is when we have the energy and the focus to maybe go get food, procure it, cook it, and then eat it and have some more of a balanced experience with food. Mm. Not just about food selection. Yes. Not even food selection, but even just like the trajectory of like what that whole experience can be can not be as volatile, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the hunger fullness scale from like zero to 10 – a lot of folks that struggle with dieting and eating disorders will stay on this, the bottom half and they'll call hunger zero and then they'll call fullness five, which is really like neutral in the middle, not enough food. Absence <laughs> of hunger, kind of. Thank you. Yeah. But so, not actual satiation. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of clients that come in would say that they have a lot of experience with that, in like, like that's that sensation is mm-hmm. hunger, but they're really calling hunger and fullness in the same category. Um, they're not actually getting to fullness. So what does fullness feel like? That what do you like think? The, right, the next well, you're question. not full right now. I'm so not you full. <laughs> you can't really name that. I, yeah. I think I would want to maybe describe first kind of the process of becoming full okay. rather than just like fullness as a full stop, which Great. I think maybe could be a separate thing especially as someone that has binged before, I know what like very full feels like. But the process of becoming full in kind of more of a nuanced way, to me, I start getting a little bit sick of eating, like genuinely less interested. The flavors aren't tasting as good to me anymore. I maybe am even thinking about like, yeah, what am I doing next? And I like to have sweets sometimes after a meal. So I maybe I'm thinking like, oh, it, Am I going to kind of push myself over the edge to not have the chocolate that I actually really want right now? Let me, like, think about that now. Or I'm sort of balancing differently at that time. Yeah. And I would say physically, I maybe am a little bit more tired as the food gets into my body and I'm start starting to digest. So interesting, even mm-hmm. trying to describe this because I'm like, I don't think about this in the same way that I used to where I was really aware of what it felt like because there was a time where I would feel like, okay, you know. What does this feel like in my stomach now? And am I feeling heavier? Am I feeling bigger? Am I feeling, you know, all these different things that are associated with hunger? Did I eat too much now? I'm, I'm thankful that you're bringing that up because okay. there are emotions and thoughts that come along and are associated with hunger and fullness that aren't always talked about. 
Yeah. So I think what you're saying is, yes, there's negative associations. I think we'll share an image that came out of kind of brain brainstorm workshop that we did with the clients just last week. But this is something we do in our nutrition education group at Opal. But the brainstorm of what are all these physical sensations, emotions, and thoughts mm-hmm. that can happen in hunger and fullness. And one of the things that's named is that shame and judgment can happen for some at hunger. And then they also feel that when they're full. They're feeling shame and judgment. So they would feel shame and judgment about the fact that they are hungry. Like, what? Why is my body telling me that I need food? I shouldn't need to eat right now. I just ate blank however many hours ago. And then there's the shame and judgment that might come if they are feeling full of like, oh, now what? How did I? What? Mm -hmm. Did I? I just ate all that and it's in my body and maybe I shouldn't have done that. And what will it do to my body? And And more of a focus on the physical sensation now in a detrimental way. I like just saying that fullness, physical sensation with fullness is that you feel like you have food in your body, like in your stomach. You just, you feel (laughs) like you're neutral. I appreciate the neutrality of that statement. Like, oh, there's food there now. Yeah. The end. Yeah. Good. Great. Uh Totally. So I think that recognizing that we do have uh, some associations that are socially constructed, maybe familially learned that put some sort of value or feelings associated with these hunger and fullness sensations that as one is working towards becoming attuned, I I think we have to do our own work to understand where some of those thoughts and emotions are coming from because they may not serve us well. Yeah. And there would be an important distinction between I am actually really full now and I'm full and maybe I feel a lot of shame. So to be able to go through the process of, of pulling those two things apart create space to then deal with the shame that you feel about your body and also still eat your eat your food. Absolutely. Which can happen at the same time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Another thing that I wanted to make sure that we talked about in this is what constitutes kind of normal attuned eating. I want to make sure that everybody knows too that you're allowed to eat when you're not hungry. Absolutely. And you're allowed to eat for emotional reasons. And it's not just about your hunger. You're allowed to eat for social reasons. You're allowed to eat for so many different reasons other than a hunger-fullness scale. I think that building the understanding of a hunger-fullness and how that feels and what it's like for each person is building an internal confidence and I think can really lead to somebody feeling like they're a competent eater. In that, then they are going to have the times where they're going to know, oh yeah, I'm not particularly hungry, but I'm drawn to this food and it's would allow for me to socially connect and it tastes good. It's actually one of my favorite special things from that bakery. And I never go there because it's far downtown or whatever. I'm so excited to eat this. And so, yes, of course you're going to eat it. And there's so much belief that that is in and of itself overeating. And I just, it's like, no, recognize that if this hungerfulness scale is on a sort of fluid continuum. So sure, you're not hungry, but that just means that then the next time you eat, like a full meal or you might feel hunger, like real hunger, is just going to be further down the road. There's also a calibration that will happen. I mean, like in my lunch today, if I wound up being exposed to one of the foods in my lunch earlier because it looked really good and someone else had brought something similar and I was like, oh, that sounds really good. Maybe the thing that I packed for lunch would seem less interesting by lunchtime because of actually the nutrient needs that were met earlier. And now maybe I'm craving a brownie. Now maybe I'm craving a whatever, that there's some some balance that's happening that doesn't need to happen in that exact moment to trust that you're going to get all the food needs met. Yes. 
when I've heard people struggle with the idea of being attuned to their bodies, it almost seems like a, a narrow tunnel vision on the food that's on your plate right this moment, rather than being able to trust sort of your whole week and your whole day of you might have this type of food on Tuesday and then you'll wake up maybe craving something different and yeah, it will fluctuate. Yeah. Things change. Totally. And I think the skepticism as you even started this discussion yeah. is I'm only going to crave the same things over and over. Yeah. And our belief is that vast majority of the desire for those things comes from the fact that one has deprived and restricted themselves those foods. So what does it look like to actually move into this permission and open freedom with those foods that then that is not the thing that we are overarchingly focused on and desiring? Then when it presents itself, it's it's not as charged. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the principles, I guess, in the intuitive eating that I also went through. It was carrot cake for me at that time <laughs> in college when I was kind of working it through for myself. And I just remember having carrot cake accessible to me all the time that I could go and get it, I would have it, and just routinely, and then just to be able to see the arch of the intensity and the behaviors with it that then totally move beyond that to allow it to be just another food that's out there. And I, I don't know what you would say about this in terms of parenting, but I'm I'm aware of the sweets in particular being like left to the end of the meal, which sometimes could feel like good structure, but maybe it also could continue to emphasize you can't have that unless you've already eaten really well, mm-hmm. quote unquote well. Um, whereas I've seen at Opal dessert served alongside the meal and that option of eat that first or eat it second or eat parts of it while you're eating your spaghetti, you know, whatever, that it can reintroduce the neutrality of a sweet in a really powerful way when you have access, not just whenever, but also within a meal being allowed to choose when you eat something or how you eat it or how much of one thing you eat versus another. Yeah, definitely. That follows more of the Ellen Satter mm, model yeah. of feeding that we have referred to in other episodes and can find resources around that too that does allow for the dessert to just be brought at the meal and allow for those at the meal to eat in whatever order they so choose. Yeah. One differentiation that I would like to name about an attuned eating approach is that – I view it as a connected and embodied, but also a responsible way of eating. And I think oftentimes somebody that is desiring to be pulled into the diet world is they like the structure Mm -hmm. of being told what to do. And then also the sort of reward, quote unquote, that does happen when one is in control. And I think the control element of if I control my appetite, if I control my hunger and my fullness and I have that sort of in grasp, I will be well is Mm -hmm. sort of the one of the myths I believe that the diet mentality kind of keeps selling. And I often will say, okay, this this approach of listening to one's body and trusting one's own appetite cues of hunger and fullness isn't a controlling thing. Like it's not, oh my goodness, I am not hungry right now. Therefore, I will not eat that croissant that's sitting there. It's still active. It Mm -hmm. still is something that I am attentive to, and it is a role of responsibility of, like, I am a human, therefore I eat, and I need to pay attention to how I'm going to be feeding myself. And the word control versus responsibility, I guess, because we we can't 
be totally disengaged from our relationship with food and body. We just can't. And so what does it look like to have tools like hunger and fullness and thinking about our appetite cues as a means to feel like, all right, I'm involved in this. I'm an adult. Like, I can do this for myself. And there's something about the shift of saying, no, I'm not being controlling or I'm not in control of it, but I'm I'm being responsible. I'm using my skills, my own internal wisdom, the you know, innate biology and physiology to sort of be responsible and take care of myself. And I really think that it's a a tool that one can lean into and and feel that and move into a competent place in their relationship with food. And one of the other kind of joys, I guess, of knowing one is trustworthy with food and hunger and fullness is that this is something that goes with you wherever you are, right? Like you can be on a camping trip, hiking, you can be in a fancy restaurant, you can be in your own home, you can be walking down the street, and your body is with you. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you can tap into what you know about your hunger and fullness and appetite cues. And that, I believe, is such a reason <laughs> to to lean into this system of of learning and development versus something like a diet that you'd have to like, oh, wait, what did chapter three say? And yeah. um, what does Am that app tell that? me? I don't understand the label in a foreign language of what's in this. And I just won't have anything today. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Within that paradigm of responsibility, I'm imagining that there is also a kind of structure that you're also speaking to. Is that right? I know that the word responsibility for some could maybe even trigger something of like, well, then what are the to do's and sort of what is the responsible way to behave with food? And I think that brings in where are you getting information about food? How do you learn about nutrition? What are the blogs and what are the apps or whatever that may be be feeding you the new recipe and the new thing? And I would say that when one is grounded in their own selves, their own body, their own appetite, their own hunger and fullness, those inputs allow one to just decide like, do I feel, does that look appealing? Can I afford that? Is that accessible to me? And then kind of say, sure, I could maybe do that. And within it struck like some structure of saying, okay, I'll, I'll plan to make that tomorrow night, you know? And, oh yeah, that, that sort of brings to light that green vegetables are something that I haven't been eating much. And that actually looks really good. The crunch and the freshness and the color, that is appealing to me. I think that the sources out there about nutrition information can be an input that can lead us to remember what our hunger and fullness and our appetite is desiring. I think we just can't be too sucked in by it as that's the answer and that is something I have to do. But it can be a stimulus of going, oh, seems like everyone's putting kale in everything. <laughs> I could try it. I don't know. But it doesn't mean that it's a have to, right? right. It's a, I'm going to see if I want to, or I'll try it at that one favorite restaurant that I really love. If you'd like to learn more about Opal Food and Body Wisdom, visit us online at opalfoodandbody.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Opal Food and Body. Thank you so much to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Join us next time. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>